in a time where parents have the weight of a thousand decisions on their shoulders and every step is like walking in quicksand, adventure's probably not in your focus. However, research shows families who adventure are more resilient and have significantly healthier minds and bodies. The purpose of this podcast is to help families connect through simple and authentic adventure experiences. Welcome to Ordinary Sherpa, your online community designed to help you connect, reach your summit, and create meaningful adventure experiences with your family. Hello, and welcome to Ordinary Sherpa. I'm your host, Heidi Dusick. I did a thing this week. I know, super specific, isn't it? I sent my book to the editor, and this is something that you know, I thought it was like a someday maybe, like someday I'll write a book. And it's interesting about the someday maybe list is that it's kind of this thing that you really don't believe in, that you'll say like, yeah, someday, I'm kind of curious about it, but someday I'll get there. And there might be things that actually belong in the someday maybe list, but it was actually through a series of people in my mastermind that I realized I was like, oh, maybe that someday is now. Maybe I should write the book. And so over the last three months, I was writing then I spent a month editing. And so now it's out of my hands and further down the path. And I just thought, you know, it's kind of funny that it happened this week because this is a good time of year when I get really reflective, when I am sitting down with my family and we're making plans for the next year or we're kind of wrapping up this year. So it's a good nostalgic time that maybe you want to look at your someday maybe list or even consider what's on my dream list. What are things that I really want to do? My husband and I do this maybe quarterly. I don't know. We don't have like a really strict practice, but we do it every once in a while. And it's fascinating. What are the things that come up with our kids that go on their someday maybe list or on their dream list? Maybe this is a good weekend for you guys to try that. If you are interested in following this journey, I go into much more detail on my email list. So if you are interested in joining or want to know the inside scoop on the book and what's happening with that or some of the other things that are developing, jump over to my email list, OrdinarySherpa.com backslash subscribe, and you'll get a little bit more insider information there. I think this episode is one of those things that's on my someday maybe list. (laughs) I love the idea of being location independent. And I didn't really know what that was. I've been following a lot of people, but I didn't really know what that meant. And so I'm really excited for this episode today. Earlier this year, I participated in a book writing mastermind that Rachel Richards led. She's one of the few who inspired me to write a book that's coming out later next year. Her authentic and audacious voice in this financial space made the content fun, simple, and a welcome change from the stuffy and dry tone more common in the space. At age 27, Rachel quit her job and retired, living off of over $15,000 per month in passive income. Rachel has made a name for herself in the personal finance realm as the best-selling author of Money, Honey, and Passive Income Aggressive Retirement. The reason I invited Rachel to be on Ordinary Sherpa was watching her navigate a season of location-independent lifestyle with her husband and dog. She set out for several months, living vivaciously in Airbnbs and making a second side following as a hiking influencer, (laughs) exploring the peaks and valleys of Western United States. Rachel, I'm so excited to have you with us. Welcome to Ordinary Sherpa. Hey, Heidi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. Yeah, I have to start by saying I remember we were in a forum together and I remember posing a question because I have a pretty strong-willed child who is, 
just thrill seeking. And I remember asking the question, like, how do people handle this? And you responded, um, I am a strong willed child that my parents just learned very on to stay out of my way as I was going to do whatever I set my sights on. Tell me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> I kind of laugh because I'm like, oh, dear, I guess I have to talk to Rachel. <laughs> yeah. So tell me more about Rachel. Who was Rachel like growing up or what was she like growing up? Oh my gosh, that's so funny. I remember you posting that and I was like, yeah, uh, I do remember my response. But uh, growing up, so I'm the middle of three sisters. I'm the middle child. And so I have, you know, the middle child syndrome, whatever I guess that means, being the strong, independent, stubborn (laughs) middle child. And I just feel like I'm one of those people that if I set my mind to do something, I'm going to do it no matter what and no matter what other people think. And one of the best examples of that is when I decided to start selling Cutco knives. Have you heard of Cutco cutlery? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I graduated from high school and my parents weren't going to be able to help me pay for college at all. So I knew I was going to have to pay for it all on my own. So I interviewed, I took this job selling Cutco knives and it was the first job where the harder you work, the more money you make. And I was like, wow, I know I can outwork anybody. I knew I can make a lot of money selling knives in this direct sales position. Of course, my parents were like, what are you doing? <laughs> and my <laughs> my mom specifically, I know she was less than thrilled about the idea of me selling sharp objects to family and friends, <laughs> but <laughs> they kind of held their comments or concerns to themselves and waited to see how it was going to go. And surely enough, I sold a ton. I learned a ton and they were very supportive. So yeah, that's basically what I meant. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. No, I appreciate that. It's fun. So having just an adventurous family, I'm always like, oh my gosh, please someone give me a little help. But I also appreciate, like I have to think about it from an empathy perspective. I was a pretty strong-willed child, but yet at the same time, my brothers were like off the charts. So I still looked like the one that was like following the rules all the time in comparison. (laughs) So I sometimes have to keep that in perspective. Yeah, that's true. That's hilarious. Oh, that's funny. So there's a part of your bio I didn't read. And that is that you have your bachelor's degree in financial economics and had previous roles as a financial advisor, real estate analyst and a financial uh, senior financial analyst. And I'm just going to say, like, forgive me in advance, but those sound really boring and dry, like not type of (laughs) jobs that I see your voice as the money, honey, Rachel as. So I'm curious, what did you find on your path, like of doing these jobs that you're like, wow, I think there's another space for me to shine. And, And how did money, honey, Rachel's voice kind of emerge? Yeah, there was good and bad for a lot of my career. I worked in the workforce as an employee for four? No, I guess it was longer. It was maybe six or seven years. And I definitely had a lot of different jobs. I was job hopping at first trying to figure out what to do. Um, And a lot of the jobs were boring, I guess, in a sense. I started off as a financial advisor because I had this passion for helping people with money. And I had the background in sales from selling Cutco. So I figured it would be the perfect fit for me. The only thing was, although I was good at sales, I'm not an extrovert. I'm an introvert. Mm -hmm. So it's nothing that it never came naturally to me. I had to force myself to do it and I could be good at it, but it was the most mentally and emotionally draining job. So I just couldn't keep doing that. But the passion for helping people with money never left. I just had to figure out a different way I could do that. That was more suited for me. And it wasn't until years later that I actually came up with the idea for writing Money Honey. Mm. And the reason I came up with the idea 
is because, you know, by that point, I did have the financial advising experience. So all my family and friends came to me for financial advice, which was great. That's what I love to do. And at the same time, I was wondering, well, why aren't they reading books like I did? You know, why aren't they learning on their own? And I had this aha moment where I realized, oh, yeah, personal finance is boring. It's overwhelming. It's intimidating. It's complex for most people. I mean, no wonder people don't like to learn about it. So I thought to myself, how can I make this topic sassy and fun and simple? And that's where the idea for Money Honey came from. And that's kind of how my entire brand and business was built, was off this idea and kind of the superpower I have of taking this complex topic and making it really easy and fun to understand. Yeah, that's awesome because I think that is the complexity is what really holds a lot of people back. It's what I was I've been in the space for a while. I don't work in finance per se. I'm more on the side, but I think it's overly complicated and when you really start to understand it, you're like, "Oh, it's that that's it." Like it doesn't have to be that complicated, but nobody made it easy for us. That's for sure. Exactly. And it's a lot of fear of the unknown. I mean, when you think about it, we are in a financial education crisis. At no point in our lives are we taught how to manage our money, and then we're left as young adults to try to figure it all out on our own. So no wonder I see so many young people struggle with guilt and shame and embarrassment when it comes to their money, which Mm -hmm. that in itself is a shame because it's not our fault we weren't given the resources we need to manage our money successfully. And because we weren't exposed to it throughout elementary, middle school, and high school, we have this fear of the unknown and it's the it's so unfamiliar to us and it makes us uncomfortable and it's this taboo thing we're not supposed to talk about so when it comes time to actually learning it can be a very very scary thing yeah i know you wrote a second book and i want to talk about that one a little bit because i just got done reading it actually and it was fascinating because i think you know so often in life we learn that you need to get a good job but yet when you really think about like I think about investing, you always want to invest in a diverse portfolio. And yet our income is often from one source. And it reminded me that like, why am I only getting all of my income from one source, aka a job, I should be really be thinking about diversifying my income. And so I thought, if you just want to highlight some of the key points, like what led you then to write this passive income, aggressive retirement, because I think that's a new lens on income. You know, we always think about reducing our spending, but we really haven't talked a lot about the income side of the equation. Yes, absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head with the income diversification. So there's a lot of things we're taught about what income security means and what it means to have financial security and what it means to retire that I think are completely outdated. So one of them is that we're taught that having a salaried full-time position equates to job security and income security. But I disagree with that because if you're completely dependent on a single source of income, What happens if that income source gets taken away? What happens if you lose your job or you get laid off or your hours get cut? Then your only source of income gets taken away and then you have nothing else. So that's where it becomes really important to have income diversification, meaning have multiple streams of income, multiple streams of revenue. That way, if one income stream goes away, you still have other income streams keeping you afloat. So that's one thing I realized. And then the other thing I realized is this way that we've approached traditional retirement Mm -hmm. has completely changed. Because the way we've traditionally approached it is that we've worked for our whole lives, a nine-to-five job, 40 hours a week, and we save up this chunk of money, this nest egg, so that when we turn 65, we can live off this nest egg for the rest of our lives. Now, that used Mm -hmm. to work really well. It really did. It's worked well for a long time. 
but times have changed and the way we've approached retirement hasn't changed at all. So for example, pensions are a thing of the past. We don't have pensions anymore. Uh, Here's an alarming statistic. The Social Security Trust Fund is projected to be fully depleted by the year 2035. So we can't even count on Social Security necessarily to be there anymore. Uh, The cost of college has ballooned, placing an enormous burden on our generation. All these different things make it very hard to actually save enough money. And a lot of studies show that millennials will need to accumulate at least $2 million by age 65 in order to retire. That number is mind-blowing to me. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't know a lot of multimillionaires. So the idea of having to save $2 million feels very daunting to me. So when I heard about this whole passive income concept, I got really excited. Because passive income, the way I define it, is that it is money that is earned with little to no Mm -hmm. ongoing effort. Now, it's no get-rich-quick scheme because a lot of people hear it. It's really misused right now, I think. A lot of people hear it and they're like, they're either turned off or they think it's a get-rich-quick scheme. It's definitely not. It takes time or money to create passive income. But the epiphany I had a few years ago is that once your passive income exceeds your living expenses, you're retired. You're Mm -hmm. financially independent. And I thought that it was a lot more attainable to try to create five or six or $8,000 a month in passive income than it was to try to save $2 million. So that's what we started working towards. And that's what I think everyone can start working towards and everyone can achieve financial independence a lot easier if they focus on passive income. I love that because I think it gives you a completely different framework to think about what's possible rather than this grind of 30 years. I think that's daunting. When I turned, I don't know, I'm like maybe 35 or something. I remember being so depressed and being like, I have to work for 30 more years. That is, There's nothing exciting about that, right? <laughs> I want right. to live my life now. And so uh, you do have, and I talk a lot about lifestyle design and certainly a core tenant of that is you still have to have the means, right? You still have to have the work and the finances figured out so that your other aspects of your life can thrive. Without money, you still can't, you're still not living a fulfilling life. So there is some element that is required in order to have a safe, stable, and thriving life. And I know you mentioned in your bio, you were able to attain $15,000. Is that in passive income or is that kind of just your framework that you used as a benchmark then to, to build your life around? Yeah, that's passive income. And I really, when I say that, I mean profit. Like that's after all the expenses that had to do with the passive income. So that was the passive profit. And the initial goal for us was $10,000 a month because that was more than enough to cover our expenses. I think our expenses at the time were $6,000 a month. Um, they've grown. They're more than that now. But we figured we didn't want to just have 6000 in passive income. We wanted to have buffer in case we had a high expense month and just to be able to continue to save. And then over time, it's grown and it's over it's over twenty k a month now, I think. Awesome. Awesome. Do you mind sharing what some of your passive income streams are? Of course. Yeah. I'm super transparent about the numbers as well. So it's changed over time though. So initially, the 10 or 15K a month in passive income was mostly from real estate and our rental properties. By the time I was 26, we'd built up a real estate portfolio of almost 40 rental units, uh, meaning almost 40 doors. So a lot of the majority of that was from the rental properties. 
And so if I think about the 2019 numbers, that's the year that I actually quit my job and we became financially independent. I would say eight or 10 grand of that was from the rental properties. And then by the end of that year, I had just launched my second book. So the other stream of income we had was the royalty income from my two books. And at the time, those were probably making two or three grand a month. And then if we look at today's numbers, they're a lot different because we actually ended up selling a lot of our rental buildings this year and transitioning that money into syndications instead. So from our actual rental properties that we own, it's probably two or three thousand a month. My books make five or ten grand a month now. It's a lot more. It's wow. pretty wild. Yeah. That's awesome. Then I have online courses that make um, five or ten grand a month. And then syndications make a couple thousand. And then I have the rest are smaller affiliate and interest income. And then I have some active income streams as well. Perfect. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. And so you have all these different streams now. What was the life you were working towards? Because clearly, I mean, you do more than work. Obviously, you're a very smart individual, but I see what you're doing in life. And it's so fascinating and inspiring. And I was like, okay, that's what I think so many people are aspiring to. So thanks for helping us get the finances out of the way. But what were you working towards? I was working towards, I just wanted freedom. I wanted freedom of time. I wanted financial freedom. And I wanted freedom of location. And when I say retired at 27, I don't mean that I wanted to quit my job and never work again. I use the words retired and financially independent interchangeably. You know, a lot of people look at me and they're like, well, you're not retired. You're clearly still working on your business. And I'm like, well, yeah, I am. I I love my business. This is fulfilling to me. And the whole point was having enough passive income coming in that I could do what I love to do. And it just so happens for me that my business is what I love to do. Right now, we spend most of our time, you know, I still work on my business a lot. It's really what fulfills me. We hike a lot. We love the mountains. That's why we moved to Colorado. We work out a lot and we travel a lot. And that's how we've spent the last six months is we've been traveling all over the West. It was a really, really exciting adventure. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more. I'm going to come back to some hiking things I want to talk to you about too. But the the last summer, I know I was watching you on social media going, gosh, this is kind of the dream I think a lot of people, at least a lot of my listeners would align with is this idea of just exploring different parts of the country. And let's just kind of break it apart. How What did you end up doing? How did you go about preparing for this? How long were you gone? I don't recall. Okay, so we were gone for six months. We're actually still living in Airbnbs. We're back in Colorado now. But we had moved out to Colorado in 2020, right during COVID. We got a one-year-long rental on a rental house there. So we were living as tenants. And then the lease was coming up. And we just figured, you know what? We have the financial independence now. We have this opportunity. We We could travel for a long time if we wanted to because we were both working remote. So we figured, why not now? Let's just do it. So we sold a ton of our stuff, a ton of our furniture and belongings, and then we put the other half of our stuff into storage in a storage unit, which it's all still there. And we sold my car as well. I was driving a used Civic. And basically, we took what we could fit in my husband's pickup truck and put it into some bins and luggage and booked Airbnbs all across the Western US and went from one Airbnb to the next. Um, We stayed in each one for probably about three weeks on average. And went on this huge loop. Uh, We went Wyoming. Let's see, where did we go? Idaho, Oregon, California, Arizona, Utah, Colorado. I think that's all of them. And it was, yeah, it was amazing. (laughs) 
That's amazing. So how did you go about, like, I think about, would you, I'll just say it. I know a lot of people are like, well, don't you miss community? Do you feel alone? Do you feel disconnected from friends and family when you're doing that long of an excursion? Yeah. Yeah. And there are downsides. So I'm so glad you asked me about this, Heidi, because people see what we did and they're like, oh my gosh, I would give anything to be able to do that. But there are so many downsides to it that I didn't realize going in. So I like to talk about those too, because it's not just this big glamorous thing that was really cool, although it was really cool. That was one of the downsides was definitely feeling a little bit isolated. I mean, sure, there were people we knew in a few of the places. And I did have like trips within trips. You know, I would go and travel to, and my sisters did come visit us in some of the places. So it's not like we were completely isolated for six months. But yeah, I mean, it's not like we had a social life where I could go meet up with friends in the evenings. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, Andrew and I together 24-7 for six months straight. So you got to make sure you really do like your person that you're with as well. Um, And we're really great travel partners. So that wasn't a problem. So that was one of the downsides. The other one, which I was not expecting, is I think we had like the worst luck with our Airbnbs and Verbos because... Mm -hmm something went wrong at like every single one we booked. And what was supposed to be this amazing trip just by the end of it turned into this really stressful thing because we never knew what we were walking into. So Mm -hmm. at two of them on weeks where it was 90 degrees and 100 degrees, we arrived and the AC was broken. And at one of them, we arrived and couldn't check in because the lock was broken and they had to like find us a place to sleep for the night and all of our groceries that we had just bought were ruined basically. And at another one, um, I had really, really bad luck with Verbo and I did this whole TikTok about it that went viral. But two of the Verbos we booked canceled on us right before we were supposed to arrive and Verbo did nothing to help us find accommodations, even though their guidelines said that they were supposed to and that we were guaranteed under their guidelines. And when you, so for example, we had a month long Verbo booked in Napa, California that canceled on us right before. And when you have a month long rental that's pet friendly with a kitchen, AC, washer, dryer, like imagine how hard and expensive it would be to find a different place for a month long at the last minute. So we had to pay out of pocket thousands of dollars more to find another place. And that happened twice with them. So it was just, it became stressful not knowing if someone was going to cancel and if the place was going to be as we expected. And I've heard a lot of other people having similar experiences on Airbnb and Verbo and moving back to hotels for that reason. So I share that just because I think it's been an interesting like trend that people are going back to hotels and just to kind of be aware of that. That's interesting. Yeah. We've had really good luck, but we aren't traveling for lengths at a time. And I, but I think that's something that people need to be aware of too. If this is what you think you're going to do, be mindful of the risks and working through that. Yeah. And just having a backup option as well. Yeah. Tell us some of the adventures you did on this six month adventure across the country, (laughs) because that also was a, I think that's a huge highlight is looking at, I always joke at one point, I think you kind of half sassingly said, I guess I might be a hiking influencer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wish. That would be so cool. We did a lot of hiking. That was fun. Um, I remember at one point, because we were going back and forth between Oregon and California, 
and we were in California on this hike, and I was like, wow, Oregon is so beautiful. And Andrew was like, we are in California. <laughs> I just I, – I did not know what state I was in. I didn't know what time zone I was in. It was super confusing. I don't know how people who travel for a living – it's very disorienting. <laughs> but we did a lot of hiking. One of the highlights was bringing our dog to the coast, the Oregon coast for the first time because she's never seen the ocean. So seeing her run down the beach and into the waves was just the cutest thing. I have videos of it. And um, we also did a whitewater rafting trip down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon with my family. And that was unbelievable. And then we didn't get to do as many national parks as we wanted just because we had our dog Chloe with us and they don't allow dogs in most national parks. But we did do Zion in Utah and we did this hike called Angel's Landing, which is like super dangerous and scary, but it was a lot of fun. So lots of really great hiking adventures for sure. Yeah. And you talk about your dog. And actually, I had an episode because I think this is really hard. I know you don't have kids, but if you have a dog, it's like having children. It's and sometimes harder, actually. So talk a little bit, too, about what did you do to really prepare and do things, plan, I guess, this experience with your dog. I, I want to just highlight there. I do have an episode on this, but I think having some just personal experience with traveling with a dog would be really helpful. So any insider tips? Yeah, for sure. It's interesting because this plan was actually originally supposed to be us going to 10 or 12 national parks and mm -hmm. just doing this whole tour. But once we realized all the dog restrictions, we had to completely change it, which was fine because we still had such an incredible trip. But that's just something to be aware of is that most national parks are not dog friendly or you really can't take them on any of the hikes or trails. And we would have had to board her for most of the time. Um, Chloe is seven, so it's not like she's a puppy where she was going to be really hard to take care of. You know, dogs are going to have anxiety anytime you go from a stable living environment to a new place and changing to a new place every two weeks. So at first, we could tell she was really anxious for the first couple months, but she got used to it after time. And, you know, we always had like gates that we could kind of gate her into certain areas of the house. And we would leave her with a lot of toys or like one of our shirts so that she had our smell. And by a few months in, she was totally fine and it was great. And we really didn't board her at all. Like one of the things we wanted to do, knowing she was going to be anxious, was we just didn't want to board her for the entire time. So we made sure that we weren't going to have to do that at all the entire time for the six months. Nice. Yeah. And I'm sure she got plenty of exercise and, you know, that you're not always doing the hikes, right? You're still kind of living life and having to work at some periods of the experience, correct? Oh, yeah. We both worked the whole time. I mean, it wasn't something where we took six months off of work. I wouldn't have wanted to do that. So it's just that we worked less. So we would work a few hours during the day. Normally, then we would go to the gym at two or three o'clock, depending on which time zone we were in, and then have the evenings off and the weekends off. So it was a pretty typical schedule. And going to the gym, how do you do that when you're on the road? I'm assuming you just join a national gym or what do you do? Yeah, we did Anytime Fitness. So they are everywhere. They're in most major cities. The only one that didn't have one was in Florence, Oregon, which is this tiny, tiny town on the coast. So we got like a three-week membership to a gym that was in Florence, which wasn't a big deal. Very cool. I know you also have a goal of hiking 14ers. Yes. So how, <laughs> how is that coming along? And tell us about, tell me about your first one. What was the first one you did and kind of how did this goal develop? Yeah, I don't know why I have this goal because they're so painful and it's this thing where it's like you're addicted to the pain or something. I think it's because I read David Goggins book, Can't Hurt Me. 
And I just find my new ways to endure pain or something. I don't know what it is. It's sick. But (laughs) the first 14, it's a Colorado thing that they want to hike these really tall mountains here. And my first 14er that I did was Quandary. And that's one of the mountains here. And I did it in the winter though, which is also, I don't recommend that. Um, I have a video of it and there's one on my TikTok, but I felt like I was on Mount Everest. I mean, the gusts of wind and snow, and this was in March, but it was negative temps, wind of, I don't know, 20 or 30 miles per hour. The wind, you would see this wind gust coming because all this white snow would pick up, and you would literally have to kind of drop down to the snow on your knees and cover your head because you'd get knocked over if you stayed standing. Wow. It was definitely the most brutal and intense thing I have ever experienced in my life. And it was a seven and a half mile hike over 3,000 feet in elevation gain. And I think it took us six and a half hours or something. Very, very slow very intense. That was the first one I did. And I don't think I'll ever do one in the winter again. (laughs) Yeah. Have you done some since then? Yeah. So once we got back into Colorado, so that was March of this year. And then we left on our travels. Once we got back just a couple months ago, we did this loop called Decalibron, which is four 14ers in one loop. And that was also very hard. (laughs) So the mistake I made with that is we did it like the first or second weekend we got back to Colorado and I did not give myself enough time to to acclimatize. Um, I'm really sensitive to the altitude. My heart rate gets up very, very high. And so I'm always checking my heart rate compared to others. It's always like 180 and everyone else is 115, which so it's not good. But this loop, you do four 14ers and I think it's seven and a half miles as well. And it, it took us about six hours, but at least this time it was during the summer. So it was a little bit easier. But Anytime you do a 14 or it's not, it's overall, it's not going to be easy, but I still like them and I still want to do them for whatever reason. <laughs> I love it. I love having audacious goals. It's kind of fun. I had a guest on not too long ago that was biking in between the 14ers and then he'd hike the 14er and he was going to do all of that in a summer. Wow. And he didn't actually complete it because he was like, that was insane. There was, what was <laughs> I thinking? <laughs> but yeah, I just love, I love hearing what people do and what drives them and, you know, just. I don't know. It's fun being exposed to different ideas. How did you, how do you prepare for that? Is there like resources that you use to help you plan or things to help you uh, get ready or to get into shape for those types of hikes? Yeah, there's a website, 14ers.com that has a really helpful forum and there's a lot of Facebook groups. But for me, it's just about doing steep elevation hikes in Colorado. Um, when I lived in Colorado Springs, there's this famous hike called the Incline. It's in Manitou and it's this staircase basically that's i think it's a mi- i forget it's a mile long but it's like 1800 feet in elevation it's super 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 steep so for quandary i would go do that like every other week sometimes just alone and that was definitely the best training that i could think of for the 14er and then weightlifting i do a lot of weightlifting as well mm-hmm. so awesome. yeah mostly that but i don't know I, it's like one of those love-hate relationships where I know I want to do another one, but then I dread it and I'm like, I can't sleep the night before because I'm dreading it so much. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. That's part of the process, right? Yeah. That's part of the adventures. Yeah. It does have a definite adrenaline piece to it that drives you. But yeah, there are. I used to run marathons and it was similar where you like, what am I doing? But then I would come (laughs) off of one and immediately sign up for another one. And I knew I was crazy. Like what? I don't really want to do this because it's, you know, six months of training and 
I don't remember how many miles I ran in prep, but then I'd do it all over again. And I did it probably seven or eight yeah. times. And I was like, this, this is silly. This is ridiculous, exactly. but I can't stop. Exactly. It's like <laughs> well, it's one of those things where, I mean, you don't grow unless you force yourself to be uncomfortable, whether it's physical yeah. or emotional or whatever. But I think it just comes back to that for me. Yeah. That's what adventure is, right? Yeah. Growth. Growth through discomfort. That's, That's exactly. what I like to define yes. it as. Yeah. So what's next for Rachel? Do you have any more 14ers on the list or do you have any other travels expected or books coming out or anything else that people should be aware of? Yeah, I think definitely more 14ers on the list, but they all have snow on them now. It's getting a little late in the season. So I don't know if I'll do another one this year. I might have to wait until next summer and then I'll tackle some more. And I'm sure I'll write another book eventually. I love to write I do have some real estate investing programs coming up in January. I have a boot camp where I teach people how to find and analyze rental property. But yeah, I mean, I'm just working on scaling my business, building a team. I've done most of my business and grown it as just a solopreneur. And I'm learning that that is, I'm not able to continue growing my business at that level alone. So I'm building a team, scaling, and just trying to have a good balance and enjoy life. That's awesome. If people wanted to connect with you, want to follow you, want to support you, how could they do that? Thank you. Yeah, my website's moneyhoneyrachel.com and my Insta and TikTok are at moneyhoneyrachel. And what I'd love to do for your listeners is if anyone wants to download my passive income starter kit, I would love to give that for free. So you can go to moneyhoneyrachel.com forward slash bonus to download that. Awesome. Thank you. That's so generous. I really appreciate that. I'll put that in the show notes too, along with, there's a lot of resources you mentioned. I'll try to highlight all of those and put them in the show notes. Thank you. Rachel, it's been an honor. Thank you so much. I love seeing people living their dreams. Even if you didn't know this was your dream of hiking crazy, insane 14ers, but it's so inspiring at the same time. So I really appreciate sharing all that you did and watching you through this process has been fun. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, Thank you, Rachel. This is so much fun. I have 10 key takeaways for you today. Number one, never underestimate the parenting benefits of having a strong-willed child. Look at Rachel. She's an example of what's possible. Number two, times have changed, but the way we look at retirement hasn't. Rachel made space to change the narrative and offer insight into what retirement could look like for a millennial. Number three, How many sources of income do you have? We are taught that salaried full-time position equates to job security and income security. Rachel disagrees with that approach because you're completely dependent on a single source of income. Much like we are advised to diversify our investment portfolio, Rachel also highlights the value of diversifying your income. She shared at least five different sources of income she has and how she's shifted those over the past few years. Number four. Passive income is not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's front-loading the work so that later you don't have to trade time for money. In addition to her book, Passive Income Aggressive Retirement, she also offered all of my listeners a free bonus, Passive Income Starter Kit, which is available at moneyhoneyrachel.com backslash bonus. The link is in the show notes. Number five, spending five months exploring the Western United States had highlights and shadows. While it was an amazing experience overall, The stress, cancellation, and maintenance issues they had to work through with various Airbnb and VRBO rentals was extremely taxing. Rachel indicated she's seeing a shift back to hotels for this reason. 
Number six, when spending six months traveling around the country, you also don't have a social life where you can just go meet up with friends in the evenings. It was her and her husband together 24-7 for six months straight. So you got to make sure you really like the person you're traveling with. Number seven, traveling is hard on dogs. While her dog Chloe adjusted after a few months, having things like gates, lots of chew toys, and leaving them with some shirts helped ease the initial anxiety. As referenced in this episode, I also have an episode 36, Traveling with Pets, that might also be a helpful resource. Number eight. While the initial plan was to hike in many of the national parks, they realized that with the dog restrictions, it just wasn't going to be feasible for their family. Since they had no interest in boarding their dog, they readjusted the overall plan and made a few day hikes at a couple of national parks. Just be aware of what the restrictions are, where you're going, and what makes sense for your family. Number nine. Maybe it was David Goggins' book, Can't Hurt Me, that sparked her interest to inflict pain and set out to tackle all the 14ers in Colorado. She summited her first 14er in March, completing Quandary, and would not recommend doing that in winter. To prepare, she referenced the website 14ers.com, which is linked in the show notes, and many forums and Facebook groups. But really, it's about doing steep elevation hikes. And number 10... To quote Rachel, while it's one of those things where you don't grow unless you force yourself to be uncomfortable, whether it's physical or emotional or whatever, it just comes back to that. Well, friends and Sherpas, that's what this podcast is all about. It's time to get outside your comfort zone, try a new, uncomfortable experience, and experience the place where growth happens. I hope you guys all take some time this weekend to have an amazing time with your family Enjoy the Thanksgiving holiday. Hopefully you can do a little adventuring. And I look forward to reconnecting next week. Take care and keep on adventuring. If you found value from today's show, here are three easy ways you can support us. Subscribe to Ordinary Sherpa Podcast on the platform you're listening to. It lets the providers know that you're getting value from the show and want to be around when we release additional content. If you feel compelled, leave us a review. Two, find your friends, family, and others you think would enjoy this show and share this episode. Three, and most importantly, join the community of families interested in creating authentic experiences through simple adventures by going to OrdinarySherpa.com backslash community. We want to hear from you and create content that would benefit your family. Thanks for joining us on this journey as we help families connect through adventure.